This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 201, The Battle of Shanghai, Part 1. Last time, on August 2nd, 1937, with Chinese nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek facing certain destruction at the hands of the Japanese, he did the last thing he wanted to do, create an alliance with Mao Zedong and the Communists. Only together, perhaps, did they stand a chance of victory in the coming war. Now that this was done, just five days later, on August 7th, Chang met with his various ministers, along with Mao's representatives, Zhou Enlai and Red Army Marshal Zhu De. The meeting was a confidential joint national defense meeting in Nanjing, at the meeting house of Lir Ji Shu, the Society for Vigorous Practice of the Three Principles of Sun Yat-sen, his former mentor. And now that war with Japan had been decided, it was time to work out the details. Japan's greatest advantage over the Chinese was its air force, and as the invaders had to come at Nanjing, the nationalist capital, the main question for the Chinese was, how were the people of the capital to be protected from bombers? Chang, still speaking at the defense meeting, read out a report that the air raid shelters were almost done. But these were just words on paper. Not trusting such things, Chang had an aerial reconnaissance conducted. The truth was that nine out of the ten shelters were still exposed and vulnerable. The evacuation of the bureaucrats' families was faring no better. Instead of an orderly retreat, the streets were a study in chaos and panic. The railway stations were congested, which meant Fewer people were leaving each day than could have been. Chang did not want those around him to simply issue statements and orders and not to look up from their desks. He wanted action. When one ordered a wall to be constructed of sandbags, did the minister get up to check that the job was done? How were the workers to get access to the materials? Chang's subordinates needed to be on top of every aspect of the defense of their capital. He summed this up with the phrase, share, share, choice, share, seek truth. 
from facts. The situation before them was all. With his speech done, Chiang Kai-shek became silent. Those that favored war with Japan now stood to show their support. One of the first to rise was Leon Xiang, the military commander of Sichuan province in western China. Being a large, populous province, Leon offered up five million troops over the next two years, if China's struggle lasted that long. What none of the assembled could know was that Sichuan would play a key role in China's future defiance. Then Yan Shishan rose. He had been a political and military rival of Chang's for years, but the facts placed before him caused him to accept Chang's leadership. Then there was Wang Jiwei. He had strove mightily for years to keep China from war, but with his efforts now nothing more than ashes at his feet, he too supported China's logical resistance. In time, everyone in the room stood up. Total war had come to China. With this done, the defense of Nanjing was intensified, and with the balance of Chang's forces here in central China, the government was safe enough for the moment. But now that war proper was to come, victory had to be the end goal. As such, the fight had to be taken to the enemy. Chang and everyone around him already knew that the conflict, in its current form, could never be just contained in the north. No, the Japanese would come further south. This being the case, Chang decided that he would pick the location of the next battle. The first step to a Chinese victory would be at the massive port city of Shanghai. But during that same month of August, the Japanese, still thinking in terms of subduing China in a matter of months, had already been sending naval troops from the north to Shanghai. By the time of Chiang Kai-shek's meeting, some 8,000 soldiers had been assembled. Days later, those troops were joined by some 32 Japanese war vessels. To combat the nearby enemy, and having decided that the vital Shanghai had to be saved, Chang reluctantly decided to use his best troops, the 87th and 88th Divisions. For years, the nationalist leader had held back his best, only using them to threaten rival warlords or to go after the communists. But now the time had come to gamble with his German-trained soldiers. In 1934, Alexander Ernst Alfred Ermann Freyer von Falkenhausen, a German general, retired and went to China, agreeing to train Chang's officer corps. Both sides benefited as Falkenhausen told Chang that his men should do well against the Japanese at Shanghai. But putting that aside for the moment, Nazi Germany would, very soon, ally with the Empire of Japan and demand that Falkenhausen return home. The general resisted, having made a life for himself in China, and had come to respect Chang. But then Berlin threatened those of his family still in Germany. Falkenhausen went home and was recalled to active duty. In May of 1940, after the quick conquest of Belgium and the West, he became the military governor there. But Falkenhausen's story was not over as he would become disillusioned with Hitler and join one of the anti-Hitler conspiracies. 
Back to China, Shanghai was not just another vast port city. It was a microcosm of modern China. There was major industry, a rather liberal view in regards to labor relations, and within Shanghai was the best way for foreigners to glimpse the real country. The foreigners in Shanghai were mostly within either the French concession or the British-led international settlement, and they, just like everyone else, knew that war was coming. The question was, how safe were they? After all, Japan's slogan had been, Asia for Asians. It must be remembered that Chiang Kai-shek was not a military strategist. That was for his officers, but his standing orders for the defense of Shanghai was, stop the enemy at the water's edge, or drive them back if they manage to land. Of course, the people of Shanghai were already panicking. In early August, tens of thousands crossed the Garden Bridge, trying to enter one of the foreign concessions. By August 5th, the number was near 50,000. There, they hoped to find safety. Sadly, many of those foreigners did not want to give the locals succor. Comments ranged from, the Chinese need to accept their fate, to, why the panic? Up until this point, as one newspaper put it, the admirable cooperation of the local Chinese and Japanese authorities has so far succeeded in preserving calmness and the absence of panic in Shanghai. Yet those days were gone as both sides openly built up their troop strengths. A week later, another newspaper, now fully grasping the panic of the people, posed the question, will sanity win? Of the various Japanese warships in the harbor, Chang's forces were most concerned with the cruiser Izumo. Built in the 1880s in Britain, as Japan's industry at the time was unable of such a feat, the Izumo had taken part in most of the battles of the Russo-Japanese War, and then, in 1913, protected Japanese citizens in Mexico during that country's revolution. And now, her four 8-inch guns, along with her numerous smaller guns, dominated the Shanghainese landscape. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination, with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As the battle for Shanghai was inevitable, both sides had decided this was where the next clash would take place. Chang's local military leader 
General Zhang Jiazhong decided to take out the Zumo before she could fire on the city. There had already been small arms fire the day before, but the locals were hoping that this was only a case of pent-up tension, rather than the true beginning of a struggle for the city. The Japanese cruiser was harboring on the Huangpu River in the city center, and unbeknownst to the ship's crew, on Saturday, August 14, 1937, four nationalist monoplanes were en route from the nearby Yangtze Delta. The people of the city were, understandably, already tense, with more refugees coming in on that day. Still, many thousands were trying to make the best of it, walking along the city streets, shopping, sightseeing, anything to escape the heat and the dread of what was to come. As the four planes came closer, something went amiss with the last of the formation. Whether mechanical failure or a massive misreading of their current location by the pilot, four torpedoes fell from the plane. Two of the explosives fell on Nanking Road, one of the busiest sections of the city. Those torpedoes landed at 4.46 p.m. One reporter would write, A bomb curved through the air, struck the Palace Hotel a glancing blow, and dealt carnage indescribable. A scene of dreadful death was uncovered as the high explosive fumes slowly lifted. Flames from a blazing car played over distorted bodies. In shapeless heaps, where they had been huddling in shelter, bodies in coolie cloth turning scarlet lay piled up in the entrances to the main doorways and arcades of the palace and Cathay hotels. Heads, legs, arms lay far from smashed masses of flesh. Dead in his tracks, as he had been directing the corner traffic, lay the corpse of a Chinese policeman with shrapnel through his head. A disemboweled child was nearby. As horrific as this was, it was not over. For some inexplicable reason, a second pilot then released his bombs. They landed on Avenue Edward VII. A third pilot then dropped his on another busy shopping area. The final pilot managed to drop his load closer to the Zumo, but only minor damage was done. By the time it was all over, some 1,000 civilians, Chinese and foreign, were dead or wounded. That same day, though a disastrous one for Chang, who was trying to show his people and the world the new resolve of the Chinese, the nationalist government released its proclamation of self-defense and war of resistance against Japan. That resistance did not start out so well. Strangely, this was not the start of an all-out continuous battle. The nationalists had lost the element of surprise, but were not yet ready to fight on a massive scale. Other forces, such as those under Hu Zongnan and Chun Cheng, were still en route. But the Japanese were still readying for this battle as well. In total, some 100,000 troops were coming down from North China. As for the unfortunate civilians caught in the middle, they and many businesses started to evacuate. Businesses were closed, and the people found the fastest way out. Yet others, after hanging up the closed sign, decided nevertheless to remain, hoping for the best. 
Also, four major universities put out the word that they would be connecting with other colleges in the hinterland should their students want to continue their education far from the war. Either way, those who stayed behind had access to fewer and fewer amenities as the city began to shut down in anticipation. As the remainder of August went by, the fighting became more intense. The Japanese, though still waiting for their reinforcements, started trying to take the city, street by street. Falkenhausen had told Chang that this would be the best circumstances for the Chinese to defend themselves in an urban setting. But as the Japanese casualties rose, their limited attempts to date were augmented by ever-increasing aerial bombardment. Meanwhile, Chang sent out numerous communiques to the country, and each one was a part of a larger message, letting the people know that, as war was now upon them, it could take years to win, or rather, to not lose. As for Japan, the military and political leadership still held on to the belief, at least publicly, that this would all be over soon, that what was going on in the north, just below the Great Wall, and here now at Shanghai, was nothing more than incidents to be cleaned up. It would have helped the nationalists immeasurably had Chang had the support of all of China, but he did not. Those warlords like Li Zongren, who ruled Guangxi province about 500 miles or 804 kilometers southwest of Shanghai, were only sometime allies of the official government. Still, Chang had been preparing for this moment for years. What leader could not? Back in 1932, the government started making detailed plans to move the administration and industrial centers inland if the coastline was to be occupied, and Chang knew there was now a very real possibility of this happening. But one more intangible advantage of starting a war in Shanghai was that the leadership could claim this was a total war against Japan for freedom. No more skirmishes or local takeovers. The war was spreading, and so too should the country's defenses. But Tokyo would wisely not abandon what had worked for them so well up until now. That this was not an all-out war, but a series of territories or regimes attacking Japanese interests. So Tokyo would go on, propping up various local leaders, or would-be leaders, who knew how to toe the line. Another of Chang's hopes with the spreading of the conflict was that the world would step in or at least pressure the United States and Britain to aid China. On September 12th, Song Meiling, a.k.a. Madam Chiang Kai-shek, took a slightly different tact and spoke to the people of the United States in a radio address, chiding their government for not aiding China. Quote, If the whole Occidental world is indifferent to this and abandons its treaties, we in China who have labored for years under the stigma of cowards, will do our best. The League of Nations offered up more words and resolutions, but nothing that could weaken the resolve of Japan. And the governments of the other nations did notice this new resolve of the Chinese, yet they were still unwilling to assist actively. 
No, what was needed was an armistice, some kind of settlement. There had been plenty before this between the foes. But outside foreign ministers could find no one within Cheng's government that would create a list of territory to offer up, or any conditions which to take to the Japanese. To be sure, the Chinese military and intelligentsia were on Cheng's side. It was the farmers and shop owners that were willing to deal. But they had no say. And it was these very groups that Chang now had to bring to his side, if he wanted more of China to actively join in on the resistance. Chang also used this now wider war to have a go at the warlord's supposed patriotism. And it worked on some. As mentioned, the general of Sichuan would send troops, as would the Cantonese general Sui. Their men went under the command of center army commanders like Hu Zhang Menan and Chun Cheng, but other local leaders would also see the light and assist, though in less direct ways. During the Battle of Shanghai, some 200,000 Chinese soldiers would take part in the fighting. The unification Chang had sought for years in peace was now becoming a reality in war. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. But there was one more advantage to this wider war. Previously seeking a non-aggression pact with Stalin's USSR, discussions in earnest were started up again. This was not simply benevolence on the part of Moscow's master. It benefited Stalin to have his enemy, Japan, tied down in China, and now he would help the nationalists on an oppressive scale. Seeing the tension mounting in Shanghai, Stalin instructed his ambassador to China, Dmitry Bogolomolov, to finalize a mutual non-aggression pact. Moreover, assistance, real assistance, started coming in. Within the first year, some 300 military aircraft, ammunition, and other supplies worth 250 million U.S. would cross the border. And Chang wisely played up his Soviet help. And why not? To have Japan know that Soviet Russia was helping them would cause further tension between those two countries. Perhaps it might lead to its own military conflict. Anything to divert Japanese forces was to the good for China. Meanwhile, the fighting for and within Shanghai continued. Chang's commander on the scene, General Zhang Zhejiang's initial plan, 
was to hit the Japanese in a surprise attack and use their larger numbers to push the invaders back into the Huangpu River. But as we have seen, the element of surprise had been lost. That could not be helped now. So Chang's 88th Division would make for the Japanese headquarters located at Jia Bay, at the main railway station in the northern half of the city near the river. Meanwhile, the 87th Division would attack the Kongta Textile Mill, where the Japanese Naval Command was stationed. If both could be achieved, the enemy would be thrown into confusion, the powerful enemy navy unable to coordinate a response. And yet, the plan did not unfold as hoped. The Japanese troops defending both targets were behind concrete placements, thick enough to stand up to the Chinese 150mm howitzers. These were the most powerful weapons the locals had. But falling back on their German training, the brave Chinese soldiers would charge at a position, being covered by machine gun fire, to get close enough to throw hand grenades at the enemy. This worked, but it slowed down the attack, and many Chinese troops were killed or wounded. Cheng Chong altered his tactics and sought to surround his objectives, as they could not be destroyed outright. Street by street, the 88th and 87th Divisions moved closer to the Japanese positions. But then the Japanese deployed their tanks into the very streets being fought over. The Chinese had no adequate response to this. By August 18th, Chang called off the attacks. On that same day, General Chun Chung reached Chang to discuss their next move. As the 36th Division had just arrived, it was decided to put them with the 87th and to try again. Sure enough, through sheer numbers, the Japanese line was broken. The docks were reached. Even better, on August 22nd, the tanks of the 36th joined them. Now it seemed as if the invaders would be literally pushed back into the Huangpu River. However, the Chinese, for all of their training, were not proficient in coordinating tank infantry tactics. The tanks, when they advanced, got ahead of their infantry support. As such, the Japanese anti-tank guns did not have to contend with rifle fire and so took out the Chinese tanks. Those few infantry that did keep up with the tanks were not enough, and succumbed to flamethrowers and machine guns. For this almost victory, the 36th Division suffered dreadful casualties of their officers and troops. To regain the offensive, the Japanese used their control of the waterways and widened their attack which would spread out the defenders' lines. On August 22nd, the Japanese 3rd, 8th, and 11th Divisions were sailed up the Huangpu and landed on the coasts of the Chuan, Shako, Shirzilin, and Bashan areas, respectively, to the northwest of Shanghai Center, by some 50 kilometers or 31 miles. And just like that, the Battle of Shanghai was altered the Chinese defenders redeployed, lengthening and thinning their lines. The good news was that the invaders were being held up in the city's center. The bad news was that tens of thousands of battle-hardened reinforcements from Manchuria and North China were starting to arrive. <laughs> 